Welcome to the Calvary Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Episcopal Church recorded live in Memphis. The Calvary Podcast is weekly sermons, but also conversations, reflections, and provocations about the mystery of God and what it means to be human in the world in need of repair. I've always wanted to be a rock and roll musician, so I get to say, Sam, could we have a little more in the monitors out here in the church? <laughs> On Tuesday morning, I decided to preach about hatred today, which someone would say is not a typical topic for the Sunday of Jesus' baptism. But in my morning devotions, I'd been reading from Jesus and the Disinherited, a slender but remarkable book by Howard Thurman, published in 1949. And the chapter I read from Tuesday morning was titled, Hate. You see, Howard Thurman says, we can't comprehend Jesus' costly way of redeeming love until we've dealt truthfully about what needs redeeming in this world and in our lives. Specifically, we must deal truthfully with fear, deception, and hate. And Christians have been pretty sentimental in our considerations of hatred in human life. We've hoped to get rid of it by preachments, by moralizing, by platitudinous judgments, as Thurman puts it. But we've not been willing to examine where it comes from and how it affects us when we're possessed by it. What he sketched out was a kind of anatomy of hate. Hatred often begins in a situation, he says, in which there is contact without fellowship. He describes his own contact with white people in the Jim Crow South to show There can be social arrangements that allow for contact, but not true fellowship or fellow feeling, as Thurman called it. These contacts can then lead to unsympathetic understanding, which Thurman likened to stepping into a man's office only to find him staring back at you. You begin to wonder whether the top button of your vest is unbuttoned, but you don't dare look down. There seems to be an attempt to size you up going on, but it's not a sympathetic one. And this kind of scrutiny becomes the kindling for an actively functioning ill will in you. And left unchecked, that active ill will can inflame fully into hatred, at least as Howard Thurman defines it. Now, I'm not a psychologist or an expert on the moral emotions, but as one sinful human being, I find Thurman's framework helpful. And what rang especially true is this insight that hatred can begin with a relatively benign but cold contact, a distance in the felt relationship between two human beings. But by the time that festers fully into hate, it's not just a distance. It's something we can wrap ourselves in because hatred has become a means of telling ourselves who we are. One more Howard Thurman description of the process, and then I promise we'll get to Jesus and John at the River Jordan. Suppose you're one of five children, he says. And time and time again, you're slighted. If there's only money for four pairs of shoes, you go without. If there are four slices of cake and one small sliver, you get the sliver. At first, you think these are just oversights. But when you bring it up to your brother, he says you're being disloyal to your parents. And when you speak to your father about it, you're punished. So you resolve never to mention the matter again. But at night, Thurman writes, 
when the nights were out and you were safely tucked away in bed, you reached down into the quiet places of your little heart and lifted out your bundles, your bundle of hates and resentments growing out of the family situation. And you fingered them gently, one by one. In the darkness, you muttered to yourself, they can keep me from talking about it to them, but they can't keep me from resenting it. I hate them for what they're doing to me. No one can prevent me there. Hatred becomes for you a source of validation for your personality. Your hatred gives you a sense of significance which you fling defiantly into the teeth of their estimate of you. From the first chapters of Genesis, we hear that sin is broken relationships, don't we? Relationships between humans and God, between women and men, broken relationships between parents and children and siblings, between humans and our own bodies, between us and the natural world. It's all in there. Go back and read Genesis 3 and 4 again. We need to understand the nature of our brokenness and our estrangement if we're to understand anything about how God goes about mending things. Which is why today I don't want to come to the baptism of Jesus with a generalized concept of sinfulness. I want to bring the sin of hatred to Jesus and ask what his story has to say about how it's healed. God knows it's still very much alive and well in our world. Mark's telling of Jesus' baptism is characteristically brief. John the Baptist appears suddenly in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And next thing we know, Jesus is standing in line. Standing in line for this baptism, John's baptism. A baptism, we're told very clearly, is a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. Now, there's a wide, fairly wide spectrum of belief about the nature of baptism among Christians. But whether your baptismal theology leans Catholic or leans evangelical or exists, as mine does, somewhere in the murkier middle, the simple presence of Jesus in that line says, first, that God addresses the sinfulness of the world not by decree and not from afar, by stepping into line with us as we try to make some kind of break or turn from our past so our sins lose some of their hold on our future. So we might assume that that doctrine of Jesus being without sin should have exempted him from this line. Shouldn't he have been more like a messianic traffic cop posted just up the road directing the rest of humanity to John for the washing that everybody else in the world needed but him? Well, wherever our doctrines and theologies might be, they can't get in the way of first seeing that stepping into that line of sinners in need of repentance and forgiveness is precisely what Jesus did. This could tell us something about how God works. It might also tell us something about ourselves if we believe we're the ones who need the work. So let's return to that slighted child lifting his little bundle of hates and resentments out of his wounded heart, fingering them one by one as a way of telling himself that he mattered, as a way of telling himself he was a self. The way hate works is to seal us off, as all sin does. Don't you think Je Jesus' stepping into that line of sinners then might have been God's way of refusing to leave us alone, literally alone, 
with those hates. Recently, a friend of mine said he'd lost a grand old heart pine tree at his house in Alabama, which he hoped to have milled into lumber. Lovers of wood will know that heart pine is nothing like the yellow pine boards you'll find in the bins at Lowe's. It is a grand, gorgeous wood. But its name might also be misleading about the nature of trees. You might assume that the most precious part of the tree is the heart, the center, the part that's wrapped up and preserved by another ring of growth each year. For a carpenter, nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, you've seen heartwood. You know those landscape timbers that are rounded on two sides, flat on the other two? You can buy them for a couple of dollars a piece. They're made from the heart of a tree. It's left over from logs that have been peeled like a pencil and a sharpener to make plywood. They're waste because the truth is that the heart of the tree is unstable left to itself. Leave a pile of landscape timbers unsecured in the sun and they will twist and warp and bow out of shape in no time. The heart of a tree is unstable left to itself. It has to be embedded in ring after ring of new growth to stay true. And so it is with our hearts. Hatred feels like a form of protection and definition, but it's a false and flimsy form. We need to be embedded in the very relationships hatred grows in absence of and cuts us off from only further. Not false forms of relationship built upon those shared hatreds. If our hates are what to unite us, we'll become another angry group of lonely, dangerous people that Jesus knew all too well, rather than the community of self-giving love he came to form. So don't you think this could be the way, the reason Jesus embedded himself in that long line of sinners at the Jordan? If sin were just something that needed to be accounted for in a divine moral ledger off in the heavenly places, well, why not settle it in the heavenly places? But he embedded himself with us. The redeeming love could not just cancel our pasts, but actually be put to work in our lives and our relationships and our world to heal them to restore the defining relationships with God and neighbor that our hearts have got to be embedded within if they're to remain true to the image of God they were made in. Jesus didn't stay down at the Jordan River for long, but at the Jordan he embedded himself in the life of a people called Israel. He lived his costly way of love among his own people even as they began to reject him. He expanded that love take in outsiders as well, women and children in a patriarchal society, the ritually unclean, and sinners whose sins had put them beyond society's pale, an adulteress, a prostitute, tax collectors, Samaritans and other foreigners started showing up to him as well. This love, embedded within the lives he was sent to restore, kept moving outward as in rings, taking in ever more of his world took in his enemies. It even took in members of the empire that everything in his culture would have conditioned him to hate with a burning, self-preserving, identity-forming hatred. His way of love, redeeming love, expanded all the way to Good Friday. And even then, even there, he did not lift a bundle of hates and resentments from his heart to reassure himself that even being crucified, he was still a self 
No, what we're told is that he loved to the end. To the bitterest end of human hatred and cruelty, he lived the way of redeeming love. And from his cross, he said, forgive them. Which is to say, give them what they came to John for that day down at the Jordan. They still don't know what they're doing. Their hates are killing not just me, but them. And left alone, their hearts are so unstable. They get twisted beyond recognition. Unless they're embedded in rings of loving relationship, you made them to live within and sent me to live with them within. So they might learn to grow outward into a love as large as even this. If you're curious about Calvary Episcopal Church, we are an eclectic bunch of Christian people who don't all think the same thoughts or dress the same way or vote for the same candidates or even believe all the same things about the mystery of God and what it means to be human. But we do believe that we need each other because of our differences, not in spite of them, and that God calls us into unity, not uniformity. Subscribe to the Calvary Podcast at calvarymemphis.org podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit Calvary in person at the corner of 2nd and Adams in the heart of downtown Memphis, Tennessee.